Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to give you an encore presentation of an extraordinary story. Uh, it is a story about uh, terrorism and immigration. Uh, we talked in July with Anand Girdardas about his extraordinary book, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. Here's that conversation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Imagine that a terrorist tried to kill you. If you could face him again on your own terms, would you do so? And if you did, could you forgive him? In his new book, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, New York Times columnist Anand Girdardas tells the true story of two very different men whose worlds suddenly collide. Rasuddin Buyan, a Bangladesh Air Force officer who immigrates to the United States with dreams of working in technology, and Mark Stroman, a Texas drifter. Driven by a misguided desire to retaliate for 9-11, Stroman shoots three random men whom he believes to be Arabs. Only Buyan survives. And Buyan determines not only to forgive Stroman, but he wages a campaign to save his attacker's life. Uh, the book is an exploration of the pursuit of the American dream, the loss of that dream for the Americans left behind by the new economy, our love-hate relationship with immigrants, the meaning of Islam in the West, and how or whether we choose what we become. Anand Girdardas is a columnist for the New York Times, where he writes the letter from America and Admit One columns. He's the author previously of India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking. He lives in Brooklyn and joins us on the program. Welcome to the program. It's great to be here with you. So what? Uh, how did you become aware of this, this fascinating true story, and what made you want to write about this? Um, you know, in, in the kind of work that I do, which is narrative nonfiction, um, you need a marriage of, you know, what are the kind of big themes in the world, the important stories, and then on the other hand, what are the micro tales of real, actual people that, that can maybe get people to, to care or look again at those big issues? Because we all think we know about the big issues. So I had spent, um, you know, a couple of years looking for a story to explore this idea of the American dream and what was happening to it. I think we're all aware that something is happening to it and something of the negative variety. Um, and it seemed to me the more I thought about it that the story was not about the American dream in decline, but the American dream bifurcating. And that some of us were actually living in an America that was more successful than America had ever been, a lot of us. And some of us were living in an America that was already a second world country right next door. And it was kind of as I thought about that, that I stumbled onto this story in the newspaper one day um, about a man fighting to save the life uh, of a guy who had shot him in the face. And the more I learned, I realized that part of his motivation was the idea that he, as an immigrant from the third world, felt that he had had a better shot at the American dream than a native born American white man from Texas born with a very uh, terrible atmosphere. Uh, so uh, I wondered, do you have your book with you? Um, you know, I can, I can, I can get it pretty quickly. Oh, okay, okay, great. Uh, I was uh, watching a TED talk. By the way, I'd uh, encourage people to go to your website, of course, after this program, uh, to watch that uh, TED talk, which is uh, uh, anand.ly is the website. Um, and you talk about, and your previous book uh, is in part about you being raised in the U.S. in Ohio. Indian parents, I guess the ultimate rebellion, you uh, 
You went back to the country, as you say, that they worked so hard to get away from. And, uh, and you talk about how, how America is perceived there. The American dream is alive and well in, in India, you say. It is. And, and part of what was so striking to me um, when I went to the country my parents had left was uh, this was a place where in so many ways, for so many different reasons, um, it had been almost impossible okay. for the very thing that happened in America uh, so naturally, the idea of individuals being able to invent themselves to happen there. Um, and suddenly, uh, after hundreds, even thousands of years of what was a relatively static social order, that started to change. And it was remarkable to watch that change in an ancient old culture. And it changed partly because they moved beyond a socialist planned economy. It moved partly because of massive, massive social justice programs, it moves because of the free market coming into India, all kinds of different reasons. Um, and I got back to America in 2009 um, and realized that in many ways, the thing that I was witnessing that we were all talking about one way or another um, was America going precisely the opposite way. Americans losing this sense that Indians were gaining of being able to invent your destiny. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's very striking, and uh, and you talk about. I see. We I think we see the statistics, the figures that uh, the middle class is shrinking, and as you put it, there's an exodus, uh, bottom and top, from the middle class in America. That's right, and 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 I think, look, we we are not Sweden. I mean, I think Americans are tolerant of a gap between rich and poor. I think Americans understand that. Some people do work harder than other people. There are differences in luck. Um, you know, I don't think this is a, a country that is, you know, uh, baiting for a, a, a communist revolution. But I think our level of inequality um, has actually become something else, which is a separate society in which uh, the chances of being born at the bottom and imagining and striving your way into the top are almost minuscule in many different social worlds. Um, and actually living in India, uh, to go back to that for a moment, gave me an interesting perspective on why that's such a bad thing. What it means is the most talented possible people to do any given job generally will never find that job. Um, and I remember this great story uh, an Indian writer told about how a generation ago, if you looked at the Indian national cricket team, the most important sport in the country. Uh, almost all the players spoke English and were from English-speaking families. Well, about 1% to 2 to 3% of Indians were from English-speaking families. So that means on your national cricket team, the society was so stratified that only people from the top 2% of society could even make it onto your sports team. Today, the Indian national cricket team is a lot of people, many of whom don't speak very good English. Um, and that is something I think we haven't faced as a country. What does it mean to, to, to maintain a society that is so stratified um, that uh, most of our best talent is kind of locked up out yeah. of use? And that, that part of the American dream that's so powerful, is, uh, I think, worries a lot of people is that's being lost to some extent. Some societies, it's, it's just sort of a 
world-weary determinism, right? That you, you don't control your fate. The American dream is you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the idea. And, um, and I think that's, you know, I, I think where we will disagree as a society is what kind of tax rates and, and, and those kinds of things. I think we're actually, you know, 80 to 90 percent of Americans agree, to put it a slightly different way, is equality for children, um, which means if, if you and I work to different levels and you earn more than me, fine, so be it. But why should your children um, have a significant advantage over my children for no fault or choice of their own? Um, and, and just that dynamic where today we can say with almost certainty that certain people's children will not graduate from high school, will not graduate from college, have a very good chance of ending up in prison, will not have a father. Uh, we're able to kind of calculate these things with devastating accuracy today. And it's, it's not good when you can predict uh, a one-month-old's life with a lot of accuracy. That means their living doesn't actually matter a lot. Their choices don't actually matter a lot. It kind of means it's all, it's all kind of baked. So tell me about, uh, this is a good transition to talk about Mark Stroman. Uh, I guess he's one of these that you, you could have predicted some of his trajectory uh, at, at his birth, as you say, probably, probably not all of it. Um, what, uh, tell me about Mark Stroman. You know, Mark Stroman grew out of the hurting America that we've been talking about. He grew out of a country that um, had been um, seeing its middle kind of fall out and drop into something like a lower middle class existence. And so he is from uh, the eastern part of Dallas. Um, his grandparents were better off than his parents, and his parents were better off than, than his generation. Um, he was a, a kind of white supremacist on a kind of casual basis, seemed to become more of a white supremacist in each of his two um, kind of months-long stints in prison. Um, worked in, in construction, worked as a marble cutter, stone cutter, um, worked in body shops in Dallas, um, but was really seen by most people around him as kind of a blowhard and a guy who talked big and said bad things about all kinds of races, but didn't necessarily act on things. Maybe he forged some checks, maybe he robbed a woman of her purse every now and then, but, but was essentially... Um, a kind of, as you say, drifter um, and good-for-nothing guy who neglected his four children and all of these things. And then, after 9-11, something clicks in Mark Stroman, um, a guy who has lived by the principle, as his daughter put it to me, of hurt or be hurt. Um, and he decides that he's going to have to avenge this jihad with a jihad of his own. And he's going to become what he calls an American terrorist. And he's going to go Arab hunting. And sadly, he's not alone in these kinds of missions. Um, and so he drove to three gas stations over a three-week period and shot three different brown-skinned clerks behind those three different counters. When he encounters um, Mr. Bouillon, apparently he, and I don't know if he did this with the others, he asks, where are you from? He does. That, that's, that was the opening question. And this was a bad neighborhood in Texas. So when a man walked in with a gun, as Mark Stroman did that day, Race Bouillon, 
immigrant from Bangladesh, been in America two years, been in Texas only a couple of months. Uh, but he'd been in that convenience store long enough to know it was not so unusual for a man to walk in with a gun and point the gun at you, and you just kind of gave him the money. That's, that's America. But this time, the guy didn't want any money. Race put the money on the counter. The guy didn't look at the money. He just looked at him, and he said, where are you from? And, uh, and Race responds, I think, finally, right, and, and betrays an accent. He just says, excuse me? That accent in the word excuse me was enough to reveal that he wasn't from around here and, and mm. he had to go. So Mark Stroman shoots him. Um, 39, it, it, was a, it was a cartridge full of, full of birdshot, and 39 pellets penetrate Race's head. Uh, two go through his eyes, stopping just before his brain. He loses sight in that right eye. He thinks he's dying. He's laying on the floor seeing his own grave, seeing his mother back in Bangladesh hovering over him. He figures this is the end, but he doesn't die. And because he doesn't die, he becomes determined to figure out why God saved him. And the answer he comes to many years later uh, is that he saved him to make a difference in the life of the man who shot him. We'll take a break now. We'll come back. I want to hear about uh, Reis Buyan, uh, just an extraordinary individual. Um, if I put myself in, in his shoes, I don't, <laughs> and maybe most of us put ourselves in his shoes, I don't know whether we would have done what, what he did. Um, we'll hear his story. And uh, I want to have uh, Mr. Girdardas read a passage. This, is, this, will, this will be to, just to set this up after the break. Uh, Mr. Girdardas, uh, page 50 at the bottom, then, then over the page. This is Mark Stroman's motivation. He, he wrote down what he was thinking when he when he went out to kill some Arabs in the, in the wake of uh, 9-11. Uh, we'll do, have more with uh, Anand Girdardas, a, a gripping true story. The True American is the name of the book. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan. Open seven days a week, featuring triple certified coffee, a seasonal organic ethnic deli, and espresso bar with culinary gifts. Ordering and location information is at cafeibis.com. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is New York Times columnist Anand Girdardas. His uh, new book is, is a gripping true story, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. It tells the story essentially of two men, Mark Stroman, a Texas drifter, uh, who in the wake of 9-11, misguided attempt to get revenge for the attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and other places, uh, goes out hunting Arabs, uh, or, or people he thinks are Arabs. He kills two men, intends to kill uh, Reis Buyan, an immigrant from Bangladesh, uh, doesn't su- su- succeed. Um, so we have with us Anand uh, Girdardas, and you are welcome to the program as well, upraxis at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. Uh, so Anand Girdardas, I wonder if you would uh, would read that passage uh, for me. This is, I'm not sure where you found this, but this this takes us inside the, the mind of Mark Stroman, what he was thinking. Yeah, this was, um, I mean, I think this was part of the criminal files that were brought against him. He had written this um, as a kind of explanation 
for what he did. And I'll just read you a little, you know, maybe some selected sentences from it. Um, he says, I began to feel a great sense of rage. This is after 9-11. Hatred, lost, bitterness, and utter degradation. Although revenge wasn't my motive, I did want to ma- exact a measure of equality. I wanted those Arabs to feel the same sense of insecurity about their immediate surroundings. I wanted them to feel the same sense of vulnerability and uncertainty on American soil, much like the mindset of chaos and bedlam that they were already accustomed to in their home country. How dare they come to America and be at peace and find comfort in country, our country, my country, America, and here we are under siege at home because we are the land of freedom. And of course, you know, we can't excuse Mr. Truman's actions and the vast majority of the country didn't react this way. But this is, an you know, Mr. Truman's not alone in, in, in having these feelings. He is not. And, 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 you know, one thing that I think in many ways we are very good at having adolescent arguments in America. We're, we're kind of experts. And one of the ways in which we have an adolescent argument on these kinds of issues, whether it's talking about Islamist terrorists or... Uh, a white supremacist terrorist like this, is that we tend to be divided into camps that say an act like this is all about white supremacy and white privilege, or it has nothing to do with it, that's a lone wolf crazy guy, as we're doing with Dylan Roof right now. Mm-hmm. Or we tend to say of Islamists, this act is a evidence of the, of the rottenness of Islam, or we say this has nothing to do with Islam, this is purely an individual. And I think you know, sanity in the argument is on the side of saying it's a complex mix often of an individual, a terrible individual, an individual with problems, and surrounding enabling cultures that allow these things to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark Stroman is a great example of that, as Dylan Roof in Charleston is an example of that, as Islamist terrorists are an example of that. Uh, They are their own people in many ways, but they operate and they are permitted to operate within a context that perhaps could shut them down if it was configured differently and fails to shut them down. Hmm. Um, And that context in the case of Mark Stroman is persistent white supremacy in certain quarters of the American South. Um, When I was driving around the old stomping grounds of Mark Stroman, uh, I saw not not a few Confederate flag license plate rings, which we are now, of course, talking about in the news these days because of South Carolina. Um, when I was interviewing his friends, people would quickly say, oh, man, we're not racist like Mark. And then they would quickly explain to you all the things that were wrong with black people and Mexicans and this and that. Um, so we still operate in an environment in this country um, of sometimes unacknowledged, um, persistent, white supremacy that has taken smarter and stealthier new forms. And Mark Stroman was, of course, a very extreme expression of that kind of larger potentiality. What if we did pause the, the current story and, and talk about uh, the, the situation in, in Charleston? Um, but yesterday, we, we responded to that with, with the program uh, here in Access, Utah. And we talked with a gentleman uh, representing uh, Black Lives Matter in Charleston. He said one of the one of the things that his group is planning to do as a response is to to find and reach out to people who hold white supremacist views and engage in a dialogue. I don't know what you think about that. What 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 should our response be to try to 
prevent. I mean, I think that's you know a great idea among among many ideas. You know, I think um, part of the problem that I find when I when I travel the country, which I get to do quite a bit, is we have, uh, we're not just a divided country. I, I have the sense of we're a country that has kind of fallen out of love with each other. Um, and that actually, um, beyond that, has fallen out of knowledge of each other. Um, I don't think, you know, people where I live in New York really understand gun culture in other parts of the country. Um, and you can't have a meaningful conversation about taking away some guns if you don't understand the people who are on the other side of that argument, whether they're right or they're wrong. Um, likewise, you, you know, I, I go to so many places. I was sitting with Mark Stroman's son, in fact, in a maximum security prison where he was serving a sentence for, you know, a drug deal gone bad. And he starts telling me, you know, over where you live in New York, man, it is so simple. Men laying with men and, you know, all the sodomy. And, 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 I, and I'm just thinking, you're in a maximum security prison. Um, and here are you just dismissing the entire city where I live where you have never been. Uh, and I think we're all kind of like that in different ways. And we're more and more like that because we each, you know, fine-tune our own little media diet. Um, we don't watch common common programming. And we just don't really know how how the other ones live and what they feel and i think ideas like the one you mentioned are important because we cannot move forward out of this very very bitter moment that we seem to be in without new kinds of conversations hmm. we, we yeah we do seem to be more and more separate i, I think i take that point um and you say in your ted talk you have a kind of, you know kind of an echo of uh, jeff foxworthy if uh, you you say if if you've you know, never seen meth. If uh, if you get paid yearly and not hourly, you know, a series of these questions, then you may not actually know what's going on in the other America. Uh, you know, I think I was I was speaking at TED in uh, in March, and it's a very rarefied audience. You know, it was the only time in my life where I will ever get to give a talk and see Bill Gates in the audience. <laughs> wow. um, and I decided to use my use my 18 minutes. I, I believe in only being invited places once, so I decided to use my my opportunity um, not to be abstract, but to be precise and to say, you know, we here in this room, if we are in this room, um, because a lot of most people there besides me paid a lot of money to be there. I, I I got to go for free because I was giving a talk, and I said, look, if if you're in this room. Um, you don't have to be a, a, a racist person or a, or a hedge fund billionaire, um, although you may be, uh, to be part of the problem. If America is working for you, um, you are thriving while, you know, half or two thirds of the country is really suffering in many ways. Um, and I think, you know, the old idea is to try to pull your you know, kind of American creed of pulling yourself up. Um, but I think we need to think about how meaningful is it to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when so many people don't even have shoes. Hmm. You, in your TED Talk, you, uh, you said that uh, some who make it make a classic error of the fortunate. I wonder if you could talk about that. Uh, in, in... You know, I, I, I think the, the, the classic error of the fortunate uh, 
is assuming that all the things you did are the are the reason you got what you got. Um, and one of the, the great mistakes of successful people is they attribute their own success to their actions and they attribute other people's failures to their actions. And successful people, for all their intelligence, can be remarkably blind to all the ways in which context pushes people forward and holds people back. Um, all the ways in which being born in the right neighborhood, having parents who push you to do your homework instead of taunt you when you do your homework, who who are able to actually say a lot of hundreds of thousands of words to you when you're a little a little baby, as opposed to not having the time to do that because you're working three jobs. Um, the advantage of having two parents versus one. Uh, the advantage of not having drugs and alcohol and addiction be part of the world in which you. You, you, you come into. Um, we live in a world in which people are handicapped from the beginning, and those handicaps are compounded by further handicaps all the way through. And yet, we cling to this idea that you get what you you get what you strive for, and you and you get what you try for, um, ignoring all the persisting and damning evidence that many people. Uh, you know, could not try enough and, 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 and still get out of, of the kind of sinkholes into which they're born. This question uh, does sometimes and can become very political, I believe. Uh, I, you know, you, you could stereotype and characterize a Democratic Party view on, on, on what you've just been saying and a Republican Party view on, on what you've been saying, this, this idea of, you know, how much control do we have? You know, I think the, the thing that actually excites me about this is I think the problem is now so dire. Um, and again, it's dire outside the places that are doing well. So this is a, a problem of those of us needing to go beyond maybe where we're living. Um, but I think it's, what's actually so exciting is that both parties, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, have been really wrong on a lot of this. Um, and really right on some of this. And I actually think to the extent that economic opportunity becomes a partisan issue, it's, it, it's dead in the water and not so interesting. But if I look at you know, the question of how do we unlock opportunity for people who are kind of trapped in these pits, I think the Democrats need to do a lot of honest soul searching. They, they talk more about this issue than Republicans, perhaps, but they need to do a lot of honest soul searching about let's say, teachers' unions. Um, there was a you know, lawsuit, as you know, in L.A., in which a judge said it was teacher union protections were actually unconstitutional in depriving children of color of the opportunity to learn equally to, to rich children. And that's an issue where, frankly, the Democrats have been protecting what that judge called unconstitutional. I think the Democrats also need to think about their aversion to any kind of discussion of family stability. Um, you know, and the Democrats have been invested in, in trying to uh, protect people from the stigma of being judged for being single parents and teenage parents. And that's great. But that should not be mean obfuscating the very documented truth that it's easier to raise a children with a backup person than without a backup person. Um, the Republicans uh, talk a lot about the right to rise and these kinds of concepts. Um, but obviously, on economic policy, 
have oriented where they provide actual financial incentives and breaks to the top rather than the bottom. Um, so they are culpable on that. And, and, you know, but on an issue like criminal justice, which the right, with a lot of help from the left, really pushed aggressively over the last few decades, um, locking up inordinate numbers of men, particularly men of color, uh, the right is now, is now coming around, um, is now in some ways taking a leadership position in dismantling um, the criminal justice kind of war on drugs complex that took us from 300,000 prisoners to 2.3 million. Um, Hillary Clinton talked about family stability in her campaign speech. So, so maybe we're at a moment where we're able to go beyond the things that each side was not willing to talk about. If you just joined us on Access Utah, we're talking with the New York Times columnist uh, Anand Girdardas. His new book is a gripping true story, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. And you're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com is our email. You can join us on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so, Mr. Gerdardus, I wonder, in cinematic terms, I wonder if we could return to this, this fascinating true story. So... Mark Stroman, post 9-11, he's looking for people who uh, who he thinks are Arabs. He's entered the, uh, the, the strip mall, the little store where, where uh, Raisuddin Bouyan is working, and he shot him in the head. Um, so now flashback. What if you could tell me about uh, Race Bouyan? Yeah, Race was um, in some ways a, a typical immigrant, American immigrant story. Um, in that, you know, many of our immigrants were fleeing truly desperate circumstances. But many of our immigrants over the years were actually fleeing perfectly decent circumstances that were simply not decent to them. And I think that's shaped our American character, these people who wanted more. Um, and Raisuddin was one of them. He had, a, he had a good life in Bangladesh. He was an Air Force officer in his country. Um, pretty good thing to be. Would have been chauffeur-driven around the rest of his life had free country club memberships. Um, but he decided at some point that he wanted more for himself. Uh, and the more was America. And so he, he had decided, in fact, that becoming a, um, getting into the IT boom in the late 90s was, was his dream. Um, so he moved to America, moved to New York, did everything from working in a French restaurant to making copies at a Xerox store to eventually moving to Texas with a, the taxes were lower, the rents were cheaper, the highways were wider. Um, and so there he found himself at this convenience store in the summer of 2001, um, a few months away from a plan to marry his fiance, start a community college, and build his own little American dream. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's just it's amazing how powerful that uh, the American dream is. Uh, so after he, after he shot, um, tell me what happens to him. He begin. He, he kind of hits the bottom of American life. He's now a newcomer. He's blind in one eye. He is without health insurance. So he is. He actually becomes homeless. His boss, who he was living with, kicks him out. He has no health care. He starts to accumulate medical debt, which eventually piles up to sixty thousand dollars worth. Um, he's begging for medical samples from certain doctors. He is really at the lowest of the low of our sometimes cruel uh, society. And from that point, with remarkable grace 
and grit, he pulls himself up. And he finds a friend who lets him sleep on the couch, and he finds a job from some guy who knows a guy, and he meets a guy at the mosque who introduces him to a guy who runs an IT academy. He goes and trains himself in IT. Meanwhile, he gets a job at the Olive Garden, uh, in part because the Olive Garden is an excellent place for him to get over his uh, fear of white people, uh, which had obviously been instilled by that shooting and you know the Olive Garden's a great great place to you know exposure therapy <laughs> um, and he at the Olive Garden I think found camaraderie found stability uh, he also started to become an American I, I say in the book because he um, he was faced with a, a bunch of decisions and you know one of them was he as a devout Muslim didn't drink wine didn't want to touch wine didn't want to serve wine and then he learned that in America, that's like half of your, half of the check, which means half of the tips. <laughs> and he had to debate: Am I going to, am I going to forswear half of my potential earnings because of my religion? And he was pretty serious about his religion. But he became an American, I think, when he said, "Well, you know, God wouldn't want me to starve, would he?" So he decides to start serving the wine. And then, of course, in typical American fashion, the novice. Uh, eventually becomes the highest grossing alcohol seller at that particular <laughs> location of the Olive Garden in some months. Mm -hmm. um, and he is very struck while he's at the Olive Garden by something, which is that many of the Americans around him, his fellow servers, uh, though they were born in this country, though they had opportunities he did not have because he was born in such a poor country, um, Many of them were in some ways so much more wounded and damaged and lacking in hope than he was. Um, he was particularly struck by the fact that so many of them had nobody in their lives, had horrible childhoods, absent parents, addicted parents, had gone out in the street looking for, for money and drugs and love. And, and he started to realize, um, started to connect that to the story of the man who had shot him and started to realize that that man was also part of that story of Americans who'd never had the same shot at the American dream that he, an immigrant, had had. So, yeah, he, he turns to his religion. I don't know if he was always religious. He, he did make a, a Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Uh, that was He did, and, and he, he had always been religious. And one of his promises to his mother, who, who really had instilled the religion in him, was that he would take her to Mecca one day on the Hajj. And so finally, uh, once he had regained some stability, he eventually, after the Olive Garden, got a job in IT, a series of jobs, eventually started making six figures in IT, starting from that very low point. And once he was making some money and he'd paid off his medical debt and he had healed, he said, okay, now's the time to make good on this promise to my mother. He flies to Bangladesh, flies her to Saudi Arabia, they go to Mecca. And in Mecca, he suddenly feels this overwhelming sense of an obligation. And the obligation, he realizes, goes back to something he said when he thought he was dying on the floor of the gas station in a pool of his own blood uh, in September 2001. He had looked up at, at God and he had said, if you save my life, I will dedicate the rest of my life to others, to serving others. And he realized in Mecca that he hadn't done that because he'd been so busy surviving. And he realized now, now is the time. Now I, now I must serve. And so he spent a year thinking about how do I do that? Do I start a charity? Do I help poor people? Do I send money to Bangladesh? 
Do I do something for victims of crime in Texas? What do I do? And finally, he came to the conclusion after a lot of soul searching that the thing that most bothered him on earth was the fact that his religion, Islam, and his country, America, because he had recently become a citizen, were in such tension with each other. And he really thought America's the best country, Islam's the best religion, I, I love them both, why can't they get along? And he decided he wanted to intervene in that not getting along and, and that his way of doing that would be forgiving the man who shot him in the name of Islam uh, and then fighting to save that man's life from death row. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll hear that story. Just extraordinary that part of this process of forgiveness would be to wage a campaign, a vigorous campaign, to save Mark Stroman's life, get him off of death row. We'll hear that following the break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams here uh, with uh, Ted Twinting. And we have some exciting news from the, the just this past hour. For everyone who was listening last hour, maybe you heard of our 2016 Wine Shanker Challenge. I am thrilled to say that we not only met, but we beat the required number of players. All right. Excellent. A $1,000 challenge. An additional $1,000 provided generously by Nettingale Wine Shanker of Providence, Utah. So thank you very much to, to Ned and Gail, our great supporters, $1,000, and thank you. Uh, to those of you who helped us to, to reach that challenge. That's exciting news. We wanted to get that out out there and uh, let you know we met the challenge, and we need that momentum to continue. And you can certainly help us out at 1-800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing the gripping story of two men in America uh, from different worlds, essentially. Their worlds collided post-9-11. Mark Stroman, a Texas drifter, uh, went out looking for Arabs as he uh, sought retaliation for 9-11. He uh, shot three men. Two of them died. One, uh, Race Buyan, a Bangladesh Air Force officer who had immigrated to the U.S., survives. And uh, we are hearing this story and uh, treating issues of immigration, Islam and the West, uh, whether we control our destinies, and who is the true American. We're going to be talking about that. It's the title of the book, The True American. The author is New York Times columnist Anand Girdardas. And you can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or... Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So, Mr. Girdardas, uh, now that uh, Mr. Bouillon has his mission, uh, he sees uh, forgiving Mr. Stroman is, is uh, I guess, a central part of that mission. And uh, that morphed extraordinarily into uh, trying to get Mr. Stroman off of death row. And this is Texas, <laughs> I'll remind people. Uh, it, 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 it is, and... and you know, it began first with this idea of forgiving, and in, in Islam, uh, mercy, as as in Christianity, is a is uh, a paramount virtue. Um, and Race Bouyan was raised to believe that that uh, you know the the passage uh, in the Quran that talks about eye for an eye that is so famous is actually followed by a clause that says, "But whoever forgives is closer to God." Um, and he was one of those people who really believed in um, 
that second clause. And so he decided to forgive Mark Stroman. But something about that felt inadequate to him, just forgiving, just letting it, saying that it's the kind of passage of bad feelings. He wanted to do something. And he decided that what he wanted to do was to save this man, uh, to make a gesture, to, to make people think again. Um, but also he had the specific vision of going around the world, him in person, Mark Stroman via Skype, um, giving speeches together, talking about the imp importance of overcoming hate. Um, and, uh, you know, so he sues, Rick Bouillon sues Rick Perry in the courts of Texas, arguing that he and on behalf of the other two victims' families who agreed with him uh, didn't want Mark Stroman killed and not to kill him in their name. Did the two men uh, encounter each other, speak to each other? Um, they, so one of the things that Raysa then sued for is the right to meet uh, Stroman again. And that was actually part of Texas law, that there's a right to victim offender mediation. Um, but so he sued for the right to do that. And that was part of his lawsuit to try to get this execution blocked or at least delayed. Um, in the end, uh, he was not granted that opportunity to meet him, and but they did speak um, for the second time and only you know only other time besides the shooting on the final day. Um, I would say uh, you know a couple hours before the scheduled execution. Well, if you want, I can even read you uh, yeah, um, love, the transcript that. of that call. So Mark says, "Race, how are you doing, Race?" Race says. Hey, Mark, how are you, buddy? Mark says, how are you doing, man? Hey, man, thank you for everything you've been trying to do for me. You are inspiring. Thank you from my heart, dude. Race says, Mark, you should know that I'm praying for God, the most compassionate and gracious. I forgive you, and I do not hate you. I never hated you. Mark says, you are inspired, Grace. Race says, and this is from the bottom of my heart. Mark says, you are a remarkable person. Thank you from my heart. I love you, bro. I love you with all my heart. Thank you for being such an awesome person. I mean it. So just a really remarkable exchange, uh, given the only previous encounter between those people involved one of them shooting the other in the face. Mm. Yeah, that is remarkable. And we should point out that Mark Stroman underwent a transformation on death row. He did, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, many people change when they go to prison, but I think Mark Stroman really had a series of epiphanies, and many people who got to know him in that period, you know, say that what happened was all the bad influences on his life that had shaped him up to that point fell out of his life immediately, all the drug dealers and the drugs and the, and the kind of negative peers, um, and the people who came into his life tended to be of a much higher quality and more caring and compassionate, you know, pastors, ministers, uh, friends, a, a documentary filmmaker who, who uh, became interested in his life and, and befriended him and mentored him. Um, and I think we tend to think about people as being malleable when they're very young and then, and then somewhat fixed. But what was so scary in a way about Mark Stroman's evolution in prison is that people 
so deprived of love when they are young as he was. I mean, this is the guy whose mother told him when he was a little boy that if she'd had $50 more when she was pregnant, she would have aborted him and should have aborted him, but didn't get around to it. Um, someone who grows up in that atmosphere where he was you know, made to mow the lawn with his bare hands because he was allergic to grass, that kind of environment, um, that someone like that is so starved of love that when they actually get it in their 30s, they can actually, they can actually change. Maybe not change as much as uh, would be needed to rectify the original deprivation, but change. And he did change, and he became more open. He confronted his own feelings. He started to understand uh, this hurt or be hurt mentality that his daughter spoke of and how it had defined his life and how pain uh, had had defined him. And one of his last words as he lay on the gurney um, was, one second of hate will cause a lifetime of pain. And uh, he had learned that the hard way. Mm. What, what, do you, what role could forgiveness play in the criminal justice system? How, do, how, how would you link those two? You know, I think this idea of mercy that, that Rasa then raised in the lawsuit and, 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 and asked us to think about is an idea with many levels of applicability. And, and I'm with you. You know, I, I don't know that I would do the same thing in this situation. You know, while I was writing this book, my wife would sometimes say to me, you know, why don't you forgive me about this thing we're arguing about? You're writing this whole book about forgiveness. <laughs> you know, uh, it, 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 it's not easy business, this, this forgiveness. But I, so, so I don't think that, you know, that we should take racist thing literally, that, you know, everybody who's a victim of a attempted murder should forgive their attacker. That, that's not what this is about. But I think we should take this larger idea of mercy and say, what does it mean in criminal justice? And that's actually happening. I mean, I think this year, more than any other year in the last few decades, there's been a real movement to say we need to reform the criminal justice in the direction of mercy. And we need to understand that when, you know, uh, a 15-year-old kid has an ounce of marijuana on him, we should not, uh, you know, deal with him in a way that essentially restricts his chances of ever working, having housing, or being married ever again. Um, that's not merciful, and we should reform the system in the direction of mercy. And I think it's that idea of mercy that has actually brought a lot of conservatives and religious conservatives onto the program of reforming this system that, you know, really liberals have tended to emphasize reforming in the past. Uh, but I wouldn't confine it to just criminal justice. I think it challenges us, this story, to ask what it would mean to build a more merciful country. Um, what's a more merciful economic policy? What's a more merciful immigration policy? What's a more merciful attitude to the suffering that people have with broken families? Uh, what does a more merciful education system look like? Um, if the idea of mercy is giving people second chances, it is closely allied to the idea of America, which is giving people second chances in a kind of different sense. Um, and I think somewhere along the way, we lost, uh, have lost uh, that strain of mercy in, in the American blood. Um, and I think Racidin's story and Mark Stroman's story is a, is a challenge to us to perhaps recover it. Here's an email from Gary and Logan. Uh, he says, I've he- I heard about your book on the podcast show about race. So great to hear you on Axis Utah. I'm struck by the subject of your book, his desire for the shooter to not be executed. 
I find it curious how Reis Bouillon's story resembles the forgiveness that the families of Charleston victims bestowed upon Dylan Roof. Yeah, I was so struck and astonished, as was the whole country, when, you know, the headline one day is this massacre, and the headline the next day is I forgive you. And uh, it obviously came out of a place of uh, spirituality for many of those people, but it came out of, a, um, I think, an idea that maybe is gaining ground in our time, um, that forgiveness is not just saying, hey, no big deal. Uh, you can, you can say, hey, this is a really big deal, and, and forgive. And I think this is actually challenging us to think about what does it mean to forgive, um, to punish, to, to give people their due, but to, to think and act more mercifully. If, if, uh, if the families, the parents who had to bury their own children uh, could the day afterward forgive Dylan Roof, uh, it shames all of us a little bit into perhaps being a little more merciful in the more trivial situations uh, in which we find ourselves. Just a couple of minutes left. I'm curious, uh, did uh, researching and writing uh, Race Bouillon's journey uh, change your perspective on immigration in any way? Um, I think it, it you know, I, I come from an immigrant family, and so I've, I've dealt with this my whole life in different ways. My parents are immigrants, and um, I think what I learned in the course of writing this book was actually how complicated the American model is. Because part of what our model is doing is, I mean, we, we really take in a lot more immigrants than most other places. And we do that to, uh, for a variety of motivations, to be open to the world, to accept refugees, the tired, huddled masses idea. We also do it for very practical business reasons. Immigrants tend to be you know, more likely to start businesses and hardworking, and in a way we're cherry-picking the best and brightest from other societies and, and, and putting them into our system. Um, but I, I started to understand how that very important goal of bringing new blood into the system um, really wrestles with the very real challenge of a country that is perpetually passing into new hands. And that's not easy. For people who are not the new blood but are the old blood and i think you know uh, i'm certainly a big fan of of new blood otherwise i wouldn't be here um, but i think sometimes those of us who are can be unsympathetic to how difficult it is for the old blood and i think we could be much better as a society at helping to manage that those transitions of a country recurringly passing into new hands and new blood the uh, book is The True American, The Murder uh, murder and Mercy in Texas. The author is New York Times columnist Anand Girdardas. Uh, his website, uh, where you can see that uh, TED Talk, is anand.ly. Anand Girdardas, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to, to be on here with you. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org.